Welcome to Creating Smarter Spaces, where every episode, you'll learn about another aspect of the intersection between technology, innovation, and the built environment. Produced for corporate real estate, facilities management, and workplace technology executives just like you, this podcast will make sure you stay ahead on the ever-evolving journey to creating smarter spaces. RTO mandates. Regardless of whether you love them or hate them, if you work for an organization that decides to adopt them as a CRE facilities or workplace technology professional, you'll likely be tasked with helping to report on at least the progress, if not actual compliance with them. In this episode, I'll share details on some of the nuances of doing this, some of the challenges you'll likely face in doing so, and a much better way to think about measuring what the organization is actually looking to achieve. I'm your host, Michael Prischula, and this is Creating Smarter Spaces. So let's dig in. This episode may be a little bit of an off-topic as it covers more than just the components of smarter spaces. But technology we deploy in the workplace is going to be relied upon to make or break the success of these corporate goals. So I thought it appropriate we talk about them. And the topic of today is measuring RTO mandates. I'm not going to use this episode to debate the pros or cons of RTO mandates because regardless of how you feel about them, you might find yourself in a position to either have to discuss how you're going to measure them or, like I've already received a number of calls on, having to measure them once they've been defined. If you work for an organization who's either thinking about or has already put in place an RTO or in-office policy or mandate that has non-compliant terms attached to it, essentially saying, if someone fails to comply, there can be consequences, then this episode is for you. So how do you actually go about gathering the data to be able to enforce such a policy if you happen to find yourself in a situation where your organization has decided to go down this route? The black and white of this situation is pretty easy to solve. The default answer is use badge data. If you're a long-time listener of the podcast, you know I'm seldom a fan of badge data but it can be used to identify if a specific individual has in fact swiped their card at a physical office on a given day of the week. That's the very easy piece to solve for. It's the black versus white of, did a specific person come to the office today or not? Let's just put the, I gave it to my friend to swipe for me scenario aside as, let's assume that the vast majority of your people are playing by the rules, then basic swipe data is going to, of course, tell you who showed up at the office and with some simple Excel sorting, how many days of the week. In many executives' head, that's the correct answer and that solves the problem, right? Well, maybe. If you find yourself in this position of having to help support compliance tracking of one of these types of policies, the next question I would ask and have to those that have approached me, back to those wishing to enforce it is, Are you good with someone coming to the office at, say, 8.30 and leaving at 9? Does that count as a day? Are they in compliance with your policy? I'm pretty sure after a few people around the table look at each other, perplexed, the answer will be no. They want them to be in the office for the whole day, or at least the majority of the day. And here's where the fun begins. Before we go any further, I'm going to put something out there, and then I'm going to explain to you why. It's my opinion that organizations that are looking to enforce RTO policies are not actually looking to ensure people are working in the office. 
What they're actually trying to police is people working from home. And that, my friend, is actually a whole different policy. Bear with me here and you'll see why. Now, let's go back to the prior scenario where they've told you that simply showing up doesn't count, that the people actually have to spend the day or the majority of the day in the office. Okay, great. This is a little more complex or invasive to measure, but in even the most basic of smarter spaces, we can gather that data. If you can enforce badge out, ensuring that every employee swipes their badge to exit the building in just the same way as they do when they come in, great. We can also potentially track IP addresses of PCs, phones, on Wi-Fi, etc. There's a long list of ways that we can gather data about how much time someone spends in the office. So the short story is, we can solve for that. If you don't know how, no problems, reach out and we can talk about it. If you don't know where to get me already, smarterspaces.live slash connect. But then I ask, how long do these people need to be in the office to count as a day before you strike them as being out? Is it two hours, four hours, six hours? Again, this normally causes some confusion. The answer that you'll probably get is four or more. So as I've seen organizations now do, such as the ANZ Bank in Australia just recently, instead of making the policy about number of days, they're specifying percentage of working time. In the case of the ANZ Bank, they've said 50%. Okay, great, we've got a number. But what about an employee, let's call him Steve, who comes in at 8, gets a call from his kid's school at 11 that his daughter has fallen ill and he needs to go and get her. Steve leaves at 11, picks up his daughter, gets home 45 minutes to an uh, an hour later and then works from home for the rest of the day. How do we treat Steve's day? Does he get a strike as a day out of the office for caring for his sick kid? Does he only get to count three hours in the office in the ANZ's policy of of 50%? What about if his child remains ill all week and he has to work from home? Does he get penalized? Or is the organizational policy that he should take PTO, even though he's capable of working and contributing his eight hours a day? Most HR organizations will say a hard no on this. They'll generally don't want to see people penalized for taking care of their families. That would be bad for hiring, bad for press, and just bad in general, which is great. I'm totally behind it. In this case, how do we know the difference between Steve and, let's say, Molly? Now, Molly badges in at 9 and out at 12, goes for lunch with a friend, and then works the rest of the day from home. In this scenario, Molly is clearly out of policy on the 4-plus hour scenario and, uh, and for the day and shouldn't be counted as time in the office and she should only get three hours credit from the office hours on the percentage-based system. Perfect. We're clear on where she sits on both the day count and the percentage count scenario. So Steve is good, Molly is in the bad books, or at least trending that way. So on the report that goes out to the 2, 5, 10, 50,000 managers who you're delegating to report and enforce this policy to, how do they know the difference between Steve and Molly? How does a manager know the difference between Steve and Molly when looking at the data on the in-office time? And how do they keep track of this to ensure that they don't incorrectly reprimand or penalize an employee? Let me play out this conversation I've actually had here for you. Well, Steve needs to fill out a form to explain his situation. Right, 
So Steve is filling out a form. Got it. Who's making the form? Again, nobody knows. Do we have a list of approved activities on the form and who came up with the form? What are the approved activities that people are allowed to be out of the office for to also count as time that's in? And how does the data on this form being correlated back into the badging and IP address audit report to align these days, etc.? Here's where you'll get a bunch of blank stares and a lot of silence because now this is getting complicated. Let's just stay, say Steve did fill out the form. He's good, but Molly, she's in the bad books because she left after three hours to have lunch with a friend and then she worked from home. Got it. Understand. But what about if Molly had left at 12, went and had lunch with a client or a partner for two hours and then went home and worked there for the afternoon? Is she still in the bad books? Is the two-hour lunch or the client meeting considered in-office time? This is where things tend to fall apart. My money here is on, well, of course it's considered in-office time. She's in supplier management and we encourage them to spend time building relationships with our providers. All right, great, I got it. Molly is also good. But how do you know this? The data you're using to track all of this can't tell the difference between Molly and Steve. Is the answer she fills out a form too? You can see where this is going, right? I put it to you that with a very few role exceptions, companies don't actually want people in the office. They even encourage them to be outside the office. What they really don't want is people working from home. And this is exactly why I believe policies like these are going to be virtually impossible to broadly enforce. There's another great scenario I'd like to propose. Can someone choose to work at Starbucks with this count as in office for the time or the day? Likely answer is going to be no. Can someone meet with a supplier or another member of their team at the Starbucks two blocks from their house or two blocks from the office or while walking around the lake in a business park? Because I mean, after all, walking meetings are encouraged for health and wellness, right? It's highly likely the reply to this will be, those are considered in the office. Okay, great. But how do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference in a way that you can gather data that would enable you to build a case to penalize someone based on a policy that would stand up in court? The only way to do this is to have every person fill out a form for every hour of their day and justify where they are going to be and why. Who's going to want to work somewhere like this? And how scalable do we think this is? I'm by no means saying this is impossible. There is data out there that could get to this level of detail. But it's by no means easy to get there. And all of the various scenarios you'd have to run through to get actual data on whether or not Molly or Steve or their co-worker Parker were in compliance or not is not a simple task. It would also heavily rely on the honor system of employees marking the reason for being outside the office to be correct, which can easily be gamed. So my question is, is the juice really worth the squeeze? I'm certainly no lawyer, but if someone came to me and said they'd been penalized or terminated based on a numerical policy that there was no hard black and white data to back up the action, well, as I said, 
I'm definitely not a lawyer and this isn't legal advice, but I'd take that case. All this aside, as you go through the scenarios, what you'll find is this. Those asking to enforce these policies don't actually want people in the office. They just don't want them at home alone. Home alone working is bad. Starbucks around the corner from your house alone is bad. Same Starbucks around the corner from your house with a client or two colleagues because they live in your neighborhood. Ah, that's good. And what about all the other gray areas? What about at a customer site, attending a trade show or industry event, flying from the US to Asia and being in transit for 24 to 36 hours, in office day or considered remote? I don't know. What about an off-site team building event? And these numbers that we're tracking, are they weekly numbers? Are they averages based on a month? How are PTO days treated in these averages? What about public holidays? What if I'm sick or on PTO for two days in a week? Do I then need to spend the other three in the office or only one? I mean, the list goes on. Bottom line, these aren't RTO policies companies are trying to put in place. They're don't work from home policies. Now, the problem with don't work from home policies is these names don't have great PR or talent acquisition ring to them, but that's really what they are. So regardless of what you call them, the reality is, without snooping all the way down into every internet service provider that could be used by your people to work out the difference between them being at home or a local cafe with a client is, in my opinion, you're not going to get to the data definitive enough level to enforce any of this automatically. And even if you did, even if you spent all the time, money, effort, external consultant hours, testing, etc., there are still exceptions that you need a way of correlating to an exception form that people would be willing to fill out using the honor system every time they sneezed or took a walk around the lake at the campus with two colleagues, which is an activity you're actually encouraging. If you find yourself involved in a conversation at your organization where this is being contemplated, I hope these scenarios help you talk through the realities. And if you find yourself in a situation where the policy has been decided and you need to help track and enforce it, I'm sorry, but I believe you've got a lot of complex work ahead of you that won't bear much fruit. But in either case, I'm happy to talk to you and see if there's a way I can help. Again, smarterspaces.live slash connect, that's where you'll always find me. As is always the case in Smarter Spaces, Data is king in supporting, and if desired, backing up the enforcement of these policies. But working outside of the office is very nuanced, and each company, site, and office has its own set of situations that need to be taken into account. Technology will be needed to gather, synthesize, and report on the data points organizations are going to need to put together accurate reports to support enforceable outcomes. But as I've spoken about in the episode, knowing exactly what you need to measure like almost everything in every smart space, is imperative to your initiative success. If you need help with this, I put together a checklist I'm going to make available to you. Just go to smarterspaces.live slash RTO checklist, and I'll send you through 15 scenarios to think through when crafting your RTO policy. Be sure to check your spam folder though if you haven't received a note from me in, in the past. And again, you can grab this from smarterspaces.live slash RTO checklist. 
At the same time, when you hear about RTO policies, let's be sure to flip the coin on what's really being asked and see them for what they really are. They aren't return to office policies. They really don't work at home policies. Only then do we know what we're really trying to monitor and enforce. Because contrary to the narrative, I contend companies don't actually want people back in the office. They just don't want them working at home. And that isn't something you can monitor and report on with badge data. If you're looking for more information on all the different ways to monitor and measure workplace occupancy, be sure to check out episode number four of the podcast, How to Measure Workplace Occupancy. I'll put a link in the show notes below. And if you're not already a subscriber of the podcast, I'd encourage you to do so. I've got some fun episodes coming up for you that you won't want to miss, including a few great case studies on my recent experience with Marriott Bonvoy mobile app and how Disney's smart connected laundry rooms left me with a big bag of dirty laundry halfway across the Pacific Ocean. I hope you'll listen in for the fun and the takeaways. So that's a wrap on today's episode. But before we leave today, just a reminder, I make this podcast for you. So if it's something you like and feel others would too, please consider leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice or share it with a colleague or friend. Not sure how to? Not a problem. Just point them to smarterspaces.live slash listen and all the options will be available right there. As always, one final disclaimer, all views and opinions I share on this podcast are my own and may not necessarily be those of my employer. I trust you've enjoyed today's topic and I hope you'll tune in for another episode soon. This is where real estate, facilities management and technology converge. This is Creating Smarter Spaces. Before we continue, I want to take a minute to thank all of you that have taken a few extra minutes to leave a review about the show. I'm really happy to see the content is resonating with so many of you. Podcasting is an interesting medium. As the host of a solo show, as they call this, it's easy to feel like you're sitting here in a padded room talking into a void, not really knowing if the message is hitting the mark or not. The star ratings and even better, the short written reviews help me know what you like and enable others to discover the show as well. So if you haven't had the chance to leave one yet, I'd love for you to do so. The simplest way is to visit the website at smarterspaces.live slash reviews and hit the rate the show button. Or you can do it right here in the app you're using to listen to me right now. It really is that simple. Thanks a million. And I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Now, back to the episode.